so much of the problems that have arisen come from our concern with what others think. And I get it. We're part of a big community and that's important. That's why we worry about the prospect. How many parents really don't look out for what's best for their child when it comes to their prospects, their marriage prospects? It's about who's the mother, who's the father, what kind of community, where did the boy go to yeshiva, where did the girl go to seminary? All this stuff that you think is relevant. But hey, how's their emotional health? What's the family like behind closed doors? Are they functional? Is there love? Is there respect? And that's the kind of thing that should be looked for. With time, I see that evolving and changing as well. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The phenomenon of the individual who grew up in an extreme Hasidic community, then rejects it entirely while physically escaping from it, has become part of everyday discourse regarding orthodoxy, thanks to books and Netflix series such as Unorthodox. It's almost become a type of stereotype, and we might assume that most who leave do so while holding on to bitterness and feeling extreme animosity. And frankly, when I prepared my interview with Leah Forster... I was expecting much of the same thing. Leah grew up in a Hasidic community in Borough Park, and after she broke some of the norms of the community, she lost her job, she lost her family, and she was instructed by her mother not even to attend her eventual funeral. That was their final communication. But what I found both moving and unexpected was Leah's continued love for her Hasidic community and her family, her defending the people who hurt her, and her genuine faith. She simply did not fit the stereotype at all. Leah is famous for her comedy, and she became much more well-known when two restaurants at which she was supposed to perform withdrew their invitations when the kashrut organizations that supervise them threatened to take away their kosher certification. The reason they didn't want her to perform was because of her sexuality, and the resulting uproar landed her on the cover of the Daily News. I asked Leah if anything about her life were off-limits, and she said no. So we talked about the community she came from, when she realized that she was attracted to women, What was the last straw that drove her family to reject her? How crucial it is to address mental health issues? Whether she actually left orthodoxy at all? And much, much more. But the purpose of this interview transcends Leia's individual story. It can teach us about the trouble with labels. It identifies the danger of caring primarily about what people will think, rather than what's best for our children. It points out that life is far from black and white, and that we can choose to love and defend even the people who hurt us most. These are lessons that apply to all of us, and we need to take them to heart to ensure that we and our various communities live up to the values that matter most, rather than the values that we want other people to believe that we possess. Leah Forster, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. It is my pleasure to be here, and as I've told you before off camera, but I'll say it again, it really is an honor considering there's the word Orthodox in your podcast, and then there's me. So here we are. Well, I guess we'll have a chance to talk about that. And today, in that vein, I really want to focus on your own personal story, Leah, and move forward from there. So let's start off by discussing what kind of community you grew up in and where. Okay. Um, I grew up in the ultra-Orthodox Hasidish sect of Borough Park. My parents were originally from Williamsburg. I was actually born in Williamsburg, and not the Williamsburg that people know, you know, 
the cool Williamsburg. I was born in, well, that's cool too, but you know, the ultra Hasidish Williamsburg. So uh, my house was mainly Yiddish speaking on Shabbos for sure. My father wore a strimal. My oldest brother was a strimal. Uh, my brothers went to Hasidish and Haimish Yeshivas. As we got older, we became, in Yiddish, we call it more ofgeklerd, which means more open-minded. However, for the mm-hmm. most part, we were still very right-wing, conservative, Hasidish slash Haimish. Um, and obviously, as I grew older, I didn't feel like that was a, a proper lifestyle for me personally. And so, yes, I made some changes. I still identify very much with my Judaism, very close connection with God. Um, you know, obviously you know, according to community standards, maybe I'm not where I need to be on their level. But at this point, I really don't care. It's really between me and God. So that's it. Okay. I want to ask you what you mean when you say that your family became more open-minded for a family from Williamsburg and then from Borough Park, what does more open-minded mean in that context? That's a great question. So I would say um, the fact that we had a video machine in the house, which was a pretty big deal. Um, My mother did take me to some Broadway shows. Um, So that was a pretty big deal. Um, And I definitely, you know, was a little bit more exposed as I got older to a little bit more of like a taste of the secular world. And that definitely opened up my eyes because once I saw what was out there and I realized that, let's say someone like me, who's like, yeah, I'm talented, you know, and I'm funny and I like to sing. And there's a limited, uh, you know, possibility or a limited threshold in our community. And the fact of the matter is, that I can't sing in front of, you know, according to halacha, I cannot sing in front of men. And in many of my Heimish circles, I wasn't able to perform in front of men. And then I also wasn't able to make the jokes that I enjoy making because a lot of the topics were very risque as, as well as my accents. So it, it put, kind of, I felt very trapped with all this curiosity and talent. And I really wanted an opportunity to see what else was out there. And once I did get that, experience, I realized that that ultra, ultra rigid lifestyle is just not for me. Personally, I'm much healthier when I can make my own choices. Then at what point, Leah, did you start feeling it wasn't for you? How old were you when you started questioning the values or the norms of the community in which you were brought up? Well, you want an exclusive? Here's an exclusive. The truth is, is that this is how I felt from a young age. I remember even being in therapy as a young kid, and my mother would tell the therapist that she left the house and she pulled down her socks, you know, like I wanted to wear shorter socks. So that was a dumb example, but it it started from when I was a little kid. And the first time I got my hands on a, on English music, like non-Jewish music, um, which again was very forbidden in my community. And then of course, the more I became in touch with, uh, you know, who I am as a person and the expectations that I, that the community put on me, like, you know, when you're 18, it's time to get married. And so starting in high school already, everything that we do is to find the right shidduch and to find the right prospect. And I mean, frankly, now that I look back, like where, where was my brain? What was I thinking? That is not who I am. I want to make my own choices. I also want to be married and I also want love, but I want to choose that. I don't want to be told that this is something that I must do. It's something that I want to do. So uh, I would say second, third, fourth, fifth grade, I was already very curious. Naturally, the older I got, the more uncomfortable I became in the very tight-knit community that I grew up in. 
I was a high school teacher for many, many years in the from community. And when I say high school, I don't know if you want to bleep it out, but I did teach in the most prestigious Brooklyn religious high schools, Beysakov Durav Mayor, Lave Beysakov and Masora Beysakov. I was head of their production. I ran their Chagigas and Shabbatones. Um, you know, I was very involved, not just as an English teacher. Um, so that was also a big part of the problem is that I was digging myself deeper into this hole and I became Leia Forster. I was signed to a music label, to mostly music music label, which is Adara. I put out a lot of comedy albums, a lot of DVDs. I sold out shows all over the world with the most ultra-religious communities in the audiences, only women, of course. <laughs> I always laugh that I performed in Union City for a group of Hasidish ladies, like 3,000 ladies. But when I looked out into the audience, literally, oh, I saw was a bunch of cabbage patch, like it just cabbage heads because that, that it was hello, hello, Tuesday, but a whole crowd. So um, I think a lot of different points I disassociated. At some point, I started living a completely double life where I was deeply entrenched in the, in the from community. And I was the comedian and the entertainer and the teacher. And my daughter was in one of the top schools. And then over time, I completely separated the other part of myself, which was figuring out who I am pursuing an education, pursuing a different avenue for my career than I had all these years. Also stepping foot into like karaoke places and comedy clubs and trying my like hand at potentially, you know, a, a broader, larger audience with no limitations. And so those two became two separate things because in our community, it's not possible for those two. By us, it's very black and white. A from Hamish lady doesn't go to a bar after work for a drink. It's it's unacceptable. Now, luckily today, things are very different. The Orthodox world is incredibly different now than the world I grew up in. There's much more room. And that's the beautiful part. That's why I love, I love Judaism now. I love Orthodoxy because I found a community that is comfortable with, with me just as I am. So you know, luckily, I don't need to separate my two worlds anymore, which is a beautiful thing. That is beautiful. And there's a lot there for me to ask. So let me start a little bit back when you talk about being in Beis Yaakov and living that double existence where, on the one hand, you are doing everything according to what you're supposed to do. And on the other hand, you're doing things privately that they would never approve of. Did you believe in what you were teaching and you just thought that was something that was like a Yetzir Hara, something you shouldn't be doing on the side when you were going to a karaoke bar? Or was it that the karaoke bar at the time you felt was the real you and you were putting on a show in school? Like no, what was the real right. Leia I, at I'll that point? Honest, you are asking, okay, I've done so many podcasts and you are asking the best question. Um, and this is great for everyone out there that's listening and wondering, like, you know, what about me? And what about like my choices and my limitations? The answer to that question is I never really thought. That's the answer. I did exactly what I was told to do from when I was a little kid. I have to be a good girl. I have to wear skirts that are four inches below my knee. Um, I need to keep these stringent rules. When I get married, I need to cover my hair and cut my hair underneath. Um, these were the things. And, and then, of course, have babies. So there's no thought process. You are raised from a very young age to believe that this is your purpose in life. And that's, you know, and that's what you need to do. As I got older, I started to see that there were other Jewish communities and other from communities that don't have these 
ridiculous, stringent rules that weren't working for me. By the way, for those of you listening, I'm not calling them ridiculous. If it works for you and that's your choice, that's beautiful. For me, it didn't make any sense for me to send my daughter to a school that made me sign a paper that she can't have internet access. To me, that made no sense considering it's, you know, we're living in the 2000, whatever, where we need internet access. And instead, I prefer to be in an environment where my child will learn um, internet safety and my child will learn boundaries and be able to make their own decisions. And actually, I'm glad because my child has taught me so much about being present and putting my phone away because they had access to whatever they needed to and were able to make smart choices and educated choices. So I'm all for everybody doing what works for them, but it's gotta work for them, you know what I mean? And I never thought about it. I was so um, robotic. Right now, when I keep Shabbos, it's because I want to disconnect, I wanna keep Shabbos and I wanna connect, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I want to ask about that a little bit because as you're speaking, you're sort of changing the questions that I had planned a little bit. Let me ask you straight out. Would you say that you are an Orthodox Jew? And the reason I asked that was that I assumed that you left Orthodoxy, but the way you're describing yourself now, it's a lot less clear than a black and white question like that. Or am I not understanding correctly? That's a really great question. And my answer to that is, and I really hope everybody processes this. I don't understand. I know labels are very important, but I don't understand why I need to consider myself something or label myself something. I I even I feel this way when it comes to religion. I feel this way when it comes to politics. I feel this way when it comes to sexuality. I think they all bring different elements into a person's life, but that is not the person. The person is a makeup of many things. So for somebody to even say, I'm gay, I'm 100% only attracted to this or that, or I'm straight, I'm 100% attracted to this or that, I feel like we, we are already setting ourselves up for failure. We need to just be and be who we are and love who we want and, and not hurt anybody. And that's how I feel with politics. I don't think any Republican out there is, or many that I know, fully agrees with all the Republican views. And I don't think any Democrat out there fully believes with the Democrat views. I feel that it's gone very extreme right and left, and we have to align all the way with one value. It's not possible. It's simply not possible. And the pandemic showed me that because I am queer and I'm considered I should be part of a certain political affiliation. When my politics or political views don't align with those that I'm supposed to align with, I'm like, oh, Leah, you're, you're betraying us or you're a traitor by thinking this or that because I have my own brain. I left a rigid structure that has taught me that I need to only think in the way that they told me to think. And I will never go back to that. So that's my connection with Judaism. I am a Jew. I'm a very proud Jew. And what's orthodoxy? What does it mean? I consider myself orthodoxy. I take Shabbos week by week. It's a journey for me, like kol yom And I would say that on most weeks, I feel very connected. And sometimes I struggle. And I feel that way with a lot of areas in my life. And I don't sit there and ask myself, am I sinning? Am I not? I say, am I being my authentic self? And am I showing up as my highest self? Sometimes I don't show up as my highest self. 
Um, and that's between me and God. He knows my journey. He knows my struggles. I hope that answers your question. What you're saying, I'm sure there are plenty of things that you and I would not be on the same page with, but in terms of the problem with labels, and that includes terms like orthodox, which is so standard. I was just talking to my wife and somebody else about this today, that these boxes they become extremely counterproductive. And I definitely relate to the idea of trying to resist them to the degree that we can. You mentioned just now about coming out as queer. And I want to ask you a little bit about that. Is that okay? Of course. But you should know, I never came out as queer, for the record. Oh. I had no intention of ever coming out. I guess some people need to come out. They do. It's important. For me personally, I never felt the need to like announce whatever because I loved my husband. And... I love people. So I didn't see the need to come out. Unfortunately, I had a whole fiasco with Garden of Eden, which I'm sure you know about. And um, they sort of kicked me out of their restaurant for my sexual, because of my sexuality. And it was doubly as hurtful because number one, I never ever put my private business out there. And I never spoke about my sexuality. I never even made a joke about my sexuality. And I kept my entire love life very, very private which no one should have to experience because when you're happy, you want to be able to share that with people. And I was only able to share it with the people closest to me. Um, and, and it was fine. It was a sacrifice that it was, it was worth it because I loved my family and I really cared about my community. I was also a teacher for many years and I had thousands of students and I didn't want to disappoint my school and my students. So I never felt the need to put my business out there. But one morning I woke up and it was slapped on the cover of the Daily News with the words lesbian comic. Forget that it was traumatizing, but it was very, uh, again, rigid. Who said, who said I'm a lesbian? Like, that's not accurate. So all, all of that was troubling. But ultimately, um, everything happens for a reason. And I do believe that this was something from the universe and this was way beyond me. I'm one tiny person in this big world and it was meant to happen this way so that I guess it could propel me to make the proper changes that I needed to make. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for your honesty. Let's go back a little bit in leading up to some more questions about that. When you were growing up in your Hasidic community, did you have any sort of education about sexuality? Zero. Absolutely not. My <laughs> I feel bad because I don't want people to to listen to this and be like, wow, he was so ignorant. But you have to understand that this isn't regular orthodoxy. Like this isn't Hasidish, Hasidish um, upbringing and a Haimish upbringing has a very specific set of nuances. And for some reason, certain things are acceptable, like, you know, taking money from the government and forging papers or sitting in a yenta circle in the bungalow colony and ripping apart every single person and speaking Washihara. But when it comes to things of a sexual nature, and I guess it's a global thing, it's not just a Haimish Hasidish thing, people are very particular, very, very particular. And for some reason, when it comes to sexuality, that's like so perverse to the point where your average Hasidish person will say, oh, a man can marry a man? What's next? A man will be able to marry a dog? You know what I mean? It's like they can't fathom it, which, again, I respect. Um, I do know that in more orthodox communities, they don't teach you that a man can't love a man. They actually just teach you that there are certain acts that are forbidden. But it's pretty clear that such a concept exists. 
because the fact that it's the act is forbidden tells you that there such a thing does exist. And unfortunately, the way that I was raised is that none of it was framed this way because I could have lived, you know, my mother passed away and we hadn't spoken for many years and it was a very difficult time in my life, but I could have lived with my mother telling me I'm hurt and I'm disappointed. I don't approve of your lifestyle. I, I, I struggle with your choices. I would, I would live with that and I would hold it and I would say, you're right, I am, I am disappointing you. And there would be space for that. Um, but unfortunately, my lifestyle was so perverse, quote unquote, and so far from what she was able to comprehend, she simply wasn't capable. And it's not on her. That's, that is a larger community issue, which has changed tremendously. There's an amazing organization called Project Makom. And I will tell you right now, I'm part of Project Makom. I'm definitely the most Goyish person in Project Makom. Um, and I say that in quotation, um, because, you know, the, the aim of Makom is to help you find a place if, you, if you're choosing to stay within the structure of Judaism and orthodoxy. And it's for people that come from extreme, extreme backgrounds. Some of them have experienced tremendous trauma, which is very relatable for me. But what I like so much about it is there isn't too much focus on the past. It's very future oriented, how to, um, you know, how to integrate into normal society. They teach manners. They teach mitos, all the things that are true Yiddishkeit. And so that's why I do like that organization so much, despite the fact that I personally don't need the support. But it's nice to know that such a thing exists. And this is the direction the world is heading in, in terms of schools and kids. When I was growing up, uh, you know, a kid like me would have been kicked out. Look, I was fired from my job of 13 years. I was in a school. They just from one day to the next called me up when I, you know, when things got exposed and understandably, I no longer fit the criteria of what a Bissacro teacher should be. I understand that. But we're moving towards a world that is much more accepting, much more open-minded. It's a really beautiful thing to watch. It really is. I mean, there's a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. Let me ask you about that then, Leah. When you say that we're moving in that direction and it's not the same now, are you referring specifically to your community as well, the community in which you grew up, or yes. to orthodoxy? You mean there it also was getting better? Well, that for sure, but also in our community. Like when I grew up, nobody taught us about our bodies. Nobody taught us about like privacy or consent or any of that stuff. We, you know, we learned it from a book. My mother handed me The Wonder of Becoming You. It was a purple book, and I read about it. I, I joke about it in my comedies that like, I saw the word O-V-A-R-I-E-S, and I thought it was Averos. I had no idea what it was. And I would say Averis, Averis, and Averos. And then I once read a Yom Kippur Machser, and it said, throw your Averos in the ocean. And I was like, how the hell am I supposed to throw my Averis in the ocean? <laughs> it was actually really funny. But yes, I think there's major strides, even with um, sexual predators and the amazing organizations right now, um, you know, organizations like Amudim that wasn't around 25 years ago, organizations that um, Zaka that talk about, you know, that, that raise awareness about the abusers within our community. So, yes, there's a long way to go, but this is not the same world that I grew up in. Heimish people today, there's so much more acceptance, so much more open minded. I love it. And my favorite thing is to hang around Hasidish people, even if they're formerly Hasidish and no longer religious, because I love the music. I love the Heimish kind. I love the Yiddish 
I'm actually dating someone and they said to me, wow, you know, you, uh, you sound like an old lady when you speak Yiddish, like a 70-year-old. I'm like, you know, I have to say, and this is really going in a little bit of a different direction, but I'm going to get back to what I was asking before. I'm just really impressed by your lack of bitterness. I was expecting you to be ready to just say they were so mean to me, they were so bad to me, and whatever their motivations were, I can't accept it. But you still have a love for this community, which is really amazing. I'll tell you why. I have a love for the community because I've realized, and this is hard, hard work, okay? I'm putting this out there for everyone. If I tell you how much money, blood, sweat, tears, and my life revolves around therapy till this very day, um, I'm going to be real. The trauma is real. I'm going to say something that my father should live and be well till 120. But I remember being in high school and my mother told me that my hair was too long. For weeks, she was asking me to cut it. Mind you, me, my hair was chin length and I had four more chins, okay, underneath. So I did not want to have chin length hair because I wanted to cover all my other chins. And my mother turned to me and said, if you don't cut your hair today after school, the doors will be locked and you won't be able to come home. Now, I was 18. I was not a baby. I was actually teaching and I was in seminary. And if I tell you that when I left school that day. I was a teacher. I was responsible for middle school kids. I was shivering that if I do not stop and get a haircut, the doors will be locked. I was terrified because this kind of um, religious trauma, where it's like, if you don't follow the rules, you are not welcome here, goes so, so, so deep. And it lasts a lifetime. I do find myself often struggling with feeling loved enough and valuable enough. And I've had to do a lot of work, a lot of EMDR, a lot of therapy. I am a recovering addict. I, I have codependency. I know you're, you're thinking, what? That's not a drug. But if I tell you, it is so much more of a drug than any drug. Because I've spent a lifetime disassociating and, and finding worth where I should have found worth within myself. But when you're told your whole life, because you're fat, that nobody's going to want to marry you because that's our community. We're very marriage-minded. Then at 16 years old, I developed, of course, unhealthy eating habits because I was terrified that I would be too fat and no man would find me attractive and that my own mother would be embarrassed to take me places. And for those of you listening, you may say, well, that's on your mother. She's not a healthy person. Granted, that is also true. And dysfunction is global. It's not just limited to the firm community. But automatically, you're struggling with an uphill battle when you are in an ultra Hasidish environment that already from day one tells you that unless you meet A, B, C, D criteria, you are not welcome in this community. There isn't a place for you. And this is in Project Muckum, how many members talk about how when they didn't want to wear strimal in their communities or they wanted to take off their white socks. We're talking about men that went to Minion three times a day. All they wanted to do was take off their white socks or cut their beard. Done. Kids out of school, parents cutting them off. Don't come here for Shabbos. You're not welcome. here. The beautiful part about me personally and my journey was that I opened myself up again to receive love from good Jews including my own father, who I have a beautiful relationship with. After my mother passed away, we reconnected. 
And he accepts me and loves me just as I am. And because of that, when I go there, I put on a full shaitel and a full skirt, not because he cares, because he knows what I look like and he loves me just as I am, but because he loves me and because he loves me and he moves mountains in his community amongst my siblings who are not happy that we have a relationship. He wants a relationship with me and he doesn't care. And because of that, it is equally as important to me to give him something that matters to him. When I walk in and I wear a shaitel and I'm dressed tenius, for that amount of time that we're together and we're singing and we're talking, mm-hmm. he looks at me and his idea of me exists for him. And I can give that to him. It's a special gift I can give to him. So I'm grateful for that. That's really something. It still brings me back to that same question, though. I mean, if I could put it bluntly, why do you love the Hasidic community after the creation of that dysfunction that ruined your relationship with your mother and made things so difficult for you? I think it's wonderful, but I'm also puzzled by it. Because it's isolated. It's not global. There are so many Hasidic Hamish people that are lit. My father married this woman who lives in the center of Williamsburg, and she's like a kacher and a bakir and a doer. And she didn't grow up like that. She grew up ultra-Orthodox, super Hasidish, and she loves all her kids the same, whether they're like this or like that. All her siblings are different. And so for me, I had come to realize that it's not everyone. But when we're angry and when we're hurt by something, we tend to make it a very black and white thing. It's trauma. It's our trauma response. So even in the community itself, you can realize that it's just individuals. By the way, again, Politically, same thing. People are like, oh, leftists and liberals are so angry and they're always yelling. Have you ever had a conversation with many of them? Or is it just the loud few that you're hearing kicking and screaming? And the same thing with Republicans. How many Republicans do we know that are open-minded and accepting and loving and no, they're not, they're all evil and no, they're not. It's individual. And if we would live in a world where we're able to take a step back and not tell ourselves a story of our own trauma, then we could see things much clearer. Yes, I had tremendous religious trauma. My daughter went from having aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents from one day to the next to having nothing. The other week I went to their, um, by the way, I say my daughter, my daughter is actually non-binary. They identify as non-binary, not for biological reasons so much, but much more for social. They believe that everyone should just be. And also, I mean, I'm in corporate. I can tell you right now, I get paid way less than men than the men in my position do. So until we live in a world where men and women get paid equally and are equal, they believe that. I respect that. Whatever. They're not hurting anyone. And the beautiful thing about my child is they don't care if they're misgendered or if they're, they don't care. This is who I am. If you do it, it's not, you're not being evil. It's an innocent mistake. There are very few out there that are dafka. I would say that. There are some that are dafka. And to those, I say they'd be dafka no matter what, whether it comes to politics, religion, they're just those kind of people. But for the most part, I've met very tolerant, accepting, loving people. Also, my love now comes from me. I don't need you to tell me that I'm not from or from. I don't care. I get so many messages on my Instagram and TikTok and all these things, and I have a big following. Positive stuff. Once in a while, yes, I get a comment. You should burn in Gehenna. Or I love when people write, Leia, come back. I'm back to where? Never left. I actually live in the most populated from community and I love it. I walk outside. I have 10 kosher groceries, a butcher, a fish store, six kosher pizza shops, a shul on every corner. Hell yes. That's what I love. 
I want to ask you about something you just referred to, and we've sort of been talking around it a little bit, but a very painful subject about being estranged from your family. You said one day your child had aunts, uncles, and then nothing. What exactly happened? Was it just that headline, or was it something more than that? Okay, so my mother sent me a text and said, Tati and I have decided that after I die, you are not welcome to come to my Leviah. We wish you the best of luck. That was the last text she ever sent me. And um, I, Was your mother ill at the time? My mother was not ill. My mother was never ill. Even when she died, it was a very sudden death from one day to the next. I was very pained, and I reached out to some of my siblings and my father. And my father has lived his entire life with this motto that whatever his wife says, he supports. And I can't hold that against him. He stood by his wife. I can't hold that against him. And also his children. You know, once his wife passed, he was able to gather the courage to stand up for himself and also his children. I know they're not too happy. And he just does his own thing. At times, it's painful. At my mother's shloshim, I was supposed to go. My father told me where it was. And then that morning, he called to disinvite me and say that my siblings, you know, and some of my mother's siblings did not want me there. And you know what? At the time, I was done. I was so angry. I said, I'm never, I can't believe I opened myself up to having a relationship with him. And this is the yo-yo and the seesaw that I'm going to go on. But when I took a step back and I took myself out of the equation, I realized that my poor father desperately wants me but he also loves his family. And I'm never going to make him choose. If I really love him, they want to make him choose. That's on them, not me. So he'll go to their simchas and he'll call me crying before the simcha and say, I feel terrible that you can't be there. It's awful that I'm going to an Einikel's wedding and my daughter isn't there. And I tell him, yes, it's painful for me. That's also a truth that exists. But the other truth that exists is that you raise these children and grandchildren and you are entitled to reap the benefits. And you can go have nachas and, and, and not worry that I'm sitting here resentful. I'm sad because of the situation. It's painful. But he's doing the best he can. You know, I can't make unrealistic demands of this community or him as a person, you know? Right. Leah, what was the thing? What was the event that caused your parents or your mother to send you that text or that letter saying, you can't come to my Leviah? What was the thing that did it? Okay, so we never had the best relationship, my mother and I. I was, like I said, I was always a curious kid. I was always different. I was always too loud. I was always too modern. I was, I remember one time when I called and she heard me on the phone with someone and I said, hey, what's up? And she said, what's up? What's up? What are you, trust? What are you talking like a guy? What's up? You know, like that, my mother was part of a very rigid call. And for those of you that are listening and think like my mother was a bad person, mm-mm. This woman cooked, baked, did chesed for the entire community and world. She was an incredible legend. There was nothing she wouldn't do for anyone, even me. Back in the day when I told her I was sick, I wouldn't. I would just be like, I'm not feeling well. 20 minutes later, there was a ring on my doorbell. Her driver would drop off fresh soup, kogo, chala. Like she would take my daughter shopping when she was younger, like and buy her an entire wardrobe. My mother was an incredibly generous, good person. Her struggle was with community. What people think was everything to her. 
And that's, for me, the biggest issue in these kinds of community, not just Hasidic community, even Litvish communities and Yeshivish communities. So much of the problems that have arisen come from our concern with what others think. And I get it. We're part of a big community, and that's important. That's why we worry about the prospect. How many parents really don't look out for what's best for their child when it comes to their prospects, their marriage prospects? It's about who's the mother, who's the father, what kind of community, where did the boy go to yeshiva, where did the girl go to seminary, all this stuff that you think is relevant. But hey, how's their emotional health? What's the family like behind closed doors? Are they functional? Is there love? Is there respect? And that's the kind of thing that should be looked for. With time, I see that evolving and changing as well. But it does sadden me that every quality of a girl is reduced to a resume on a shidduch. So that's what we get now, a one-pager and a picture, and that's what we make our assumption. Yuck. So Leah, let me ask that question again, because what you're saying is is Mm. crucial. What was the thing that caused them to cut off the relationship? So the thing was, I was with someone at the time who, and this is a whole nother issue, who had incredible PTSD, really, really bad trauma for many years of in our relationship, really bad nightmares, like awful and a ton of anxiety and panic. And at a certain point as a, as a a partner of somebody struggling like that, I was like, what is going on? Like, and they confided in me that they had in fact been taken advantage of for many years in their camp, in a girl's camp, um, by a girl head counselor a woman head counselor. And this was also a cure of mentality where they would bring the girls home for Shabbat during the year. This girl was 21. She was 14. She brought her to her home for Shabbat. And obviously at night, I don't have to tell you the rest. And this girl was raised in a Baal environment and very uh, deprived in terms of Judaism and also in terms of like wealth. And so to be around all these Heimish from like booming people was very tempting and exciting for her. And so she thought this was part of the deal. Like part of the deal is, you know, you allow her to touch you or do whatever. But it went so much more than just sexual abuse. It was incredibly emotionally manipulative to the point where if this girl would sit on someone else's lap, a counselor would come over to her and say, I'm going to report you for sitting on her lap. Meanwhile, behind closed doors, she was taking full advantage of her. It caused her tremendous trauma and anxiety. She actually tried to take her to Dentora. And all she wanted was an apology. And the girl really gaslit her on the phone when she called. She hadn't spoken to her in years and said hi. And she said, no one's going to believe you. Luckily for me, by the way, I recorded it. I recorded the conversation. Hmm. And um, we had, a, and, and also she saved every single letter the girl ever wrote her. She saved every um, document and all the faxes that she would write her to camp. This girl was only there one half. The other half, she would say, Make sure to give yourself a kiss in my spot, in my favorite spot, my precious little girl. Typical grooming, whatever. Um, so when this, I said, you know something? I have a voice. I have a platform and I love you. I want to use it for good. And so we put all the documents together. We tried to take her to Dentora. And then the rest I don't want to talk about because that's between her and what's going on. But I did raise awareness and I did put a video out there. And I put the video out there. to my mother that was the biggest dagger because not only was it me and this girl but also me exposing something in the community and she happened to have known this person as well I think that was personal for her too 
um, she knew their family. So maybe she felt like it was a personal attack against her. I, I don't know. I can't speak for her. She's not alive. But I do know that in that time, I'm sure that that was just, that's it. She couldn't, she couldn't anymore. That was it. Now, wherever she was going, she was getting regards that look what her daughter did. Her daughter exposed something huge. And that was, I think, at that point. And her last text to me was, don't come to my Leviah. Good luck with your life and good luck with blank and this person's name. So clearly that was a part of the equation as well. Wow. Um, that that just sounds such, like such a painful thing to have to go through, yeah. to have that be your last communication with your mother. And I'm also somewhat dumbfounded. Not that anything, I speak as a parent, I have seven children, not that anything, anything is a reason to withhold love from children. But the idea of, and again, I'm not trying to make your mother look bad. I know you, you have said that she was a wonderful woman. I want woman. to be very clear because I need to be very clear again. Not only was my not- mother not bad, she was actually good. This mm-hmm. was beyond her. Unfortunately, she's not growing up in the world that we grow up in today where we have access to good mental health. And, um, and there's a lot of talk about self-growth and connecting with our higher self. She didn't grow up in that world. She grew up in a world where we follow the structure. This is how it is. You do what your mother told you to do. And that's the end of that. And again, that's not everyone. This is her specifically. And this is what it boiled down to. If I have to say it, I would say my mother was really challenged, mm-hmm. mentally challenged when it came to stepping outside of what people think. It just sounds so much like almost the biggest problem might have been exposing the community as anything specific in your life. It was the fact that you pointed fingers at somebody who was doing something wrong. To me, that's just doubly shocking. Someone who was, you know, um, I was romantically involved with. And I think all of it was just too shameful for her. It was incredibly shameful shameful maybe she felt like she failed as a mother or she failed me as a mother or you know something i saw pictures of her growing up she had short hair she wore a button down and a tie maybe there was a part of her that really wanted more of what i had because she would take me to broadway shows she would rent videos and watch them with me so there was definitely a part of her that maybe felt like because there were times when my mother did say to me you don't know my struggles you don't know what i'm going through so it's everything is possible. The good news is, is that I do visit her um, Kaver, or not I wouldn't say often, but I write letters and, I, and I've gone there a couple of times. And also I reconnected with my family. So that, that really was very cathartic for me. And I'm able to see her in a whole different way. By my nightstand, I have a book of all these beautiful stories that her neighbors wrote about her of things that she had done. And I read it from time to time because I want to remember her as good. She's not a bad person. She just didn't connect well with her children. Not just me, by the way. I was maybe the biggest target, but all my siblings struggled with her very much. It just sounds, Leah, almost everything that you've spoken to me about over the past 40 minutes has that same theme of the world is not black and white. People are not all good or all bad. Communities are a mix. People are a mix. Life is a mix. And I just find that very refreshing and actually very impressive coming from someone who's been hurt so much. Would it be okay if I asked you about your experience growing up? I know you said you didn't come out, but growing up as you defined it as queer in that community? You ready? If you're willing to talk about it, I'd like to hear about it. Okay. I had a sixth grade teacher. Her name was Miss Eisner. I was obsessed hardcore obsessed. I would fall asleep at night and think about her. 
In high school, I had another teacher, Ms. Grandma, obsessed. I definitely had, there was female energy that I was, you know, vibing with. And there was a girl up my block and there was a girl in camp that I fell in love with. I never did anything because I was terrified that God will smite me. But I always was drawn to women. I was. Um, that doesn't mean that I, I think men are disgusting or anything like that. I just always knew. And I don't believe that there was a, an incident that created that for me. I believe it's from a young age, if I would pass by ShopRite and I would see a magazine, I was always enamored by the women. I find women beautiful. I'm sorry if this is too much. I know you're an Orthodox podcast. So I, I'm fascinated by them. I, 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 I think women are just, wow. And unfortunately what happened was after my husband, shortly after I left my husband, I, I met my, my partner of six years um, and she was a woman and she loved me so hard and she welcomed me into her life and her family is from, and they loved me like their own. And I suddenly had family that accepted me unconditionally. And I suddenly had a person that accepted me unconditionally and she was a woman and it was this dream life. To be honest, we were completely not compatible with one another. We were both so, so, so broken. I was coming out of not only a traumatic childhood and a community that disowned me, I was fired from my job all, ha all in a very short time. And then I met her shortly thereafter and I was coming out of a really tough marriage. Again, my husband was decent, but it was a very, I'm not gonna go into detail, it was traumatic. And I was not ready to be a full-time I was a mother, I was, I was a poverty stricken. I was, my family disowned me. I was a teacher, okay? I was making a teacher's salary. And um, overall, I met her. I thought I, I fell in love and I, and I thought I'm gonna have this perfect life. And as the years went by, I realized not only was she dealing with her trauma and then she had a horrible situation. She was an EMT and her grandmother was actually crushed by a car. And she was like part of this. And then I remember when she called me and the shrieking on the phone, it was awful. I don't, and her grandmother raised her. Okay. And then when I, it was just awful. And then a few days later, she started having these nocturnal panic attacks and, and then it became very claustrophobic and couldn't get in a bridge and couldn't go in a tunnel and couldn't go in an elevator. And I feel really terrible talking about her because again, what an incredible neshama of a person. And she's really happy now. And she moved on. But at the time, I thought I found my person. And that is part of the religious trauma, which I want to recognize. My codependency told me that my value lies in being something to someone. So I went from being nothing to no one to being everything to someone. And that gave me such purpose that even though we were not compatible, and even though I had no idea who I was as a human being, I connected with her because finally, there's a woman that loves me. You know, now I'm recognizing that you're so, I need to like, if we could go back to the way the Torah used to be, we were earth people. We were earth people. We, what is his bodhidus? What is meditating? What is being one with the earth and nature? What does it mean? This world is mine in abundance. And I just need to figure out what's for me. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> I want to ask you, you talk about seeing magazine covers and shop, right? with women on them, being fascinated and being obsessed with them. When did it occur to you that you had what we'd call a same-sex attraction, meaning that this is something which was 
taboo, something which wouldn't be accepted in your community. When did it occur to you that this was something that maybe you would want to hide, maybe I'd say? So when I was in maybe fifth grade, there was a girl up my block. I'm not going to say her name, but she was fun. And she came over to my house to play. And I don't have to tell you what happens when girls play. We were making nice. Okay. And we were, you know, both Shabbos mommies. And my father came into the room and he saw me. And by the way, we weren't doing bad. You know, we're just playing curious. We didn't know. And my father said, Fah! Foy, come ahead. And he sat me down and he said, Lila. They called me Lila. One day you're going to marry a man. And why are men better than women? And I was like, oh, please do tell father there. And he said, men are better than women because the Rabbeinu Shalom created men first. And in my head, as an English teacher, I'm like, yeah, don't you make a rough draft before you make a final draft? <laughs> uh, you know, so I knew right away that that was clearly taboo. And as I got older and I said, I feel bad talking about my dad, but he's so funny. I said something once about somebody gay and he says, oh, he, they probably molest each other because he doesn't know. He, he didn't have a concept of what that meant, you know, and again, just because he doesn't want to. He doesn't need to. Um, so yes, from a very young age, I was always fascinated by women and, you know, it's actually really sad because looking back when I went to college classes, which for those of you listening that don't know what that is, it's where a teacher teaches you when you get engaged about the birds and the bees, because your average basiacal girl or Heimish girl knows nothing about sex and knows nothing about the opposite gender in a sexual nature. When I was home for Shabbos, my brother did not have friends over. If he had friends over, my mother sent me away for Shabbos because I wasn't allowed to be around boys. So I had very limited contact with the opposite gender. And as you know, in our community, ultra-Orthodox, all maybe we do is say hello and goodbye. We're not rude. But even men in the grocery store, Hasid Shemen, they won't give a woman the change. They'll place it down. You know, they won't open a door if a woman's passing by. They'll open a door maybe for a man. But women and men are very, very separate. And the more Hasidish and the more yeshivish and the more stringent, the more strict that concept becomes. So in very, very strict communities, they even are told to walk on opposite sides of the streets so that they don't even look at each other. Women are not allowed to wear perfume in a car service or an Uber, lest they turn on a man with their smell, you know? So these are all, and these are, I'm not making this up. This is all stuff that I was taught. I don't want to be one of those people that come out with a, a show and, and people are like, that's a lie. This is not a lie. This Leah, I live in Ramat Beit Shemesh in Israel. I can confirm that what you're talking about is true. Thank you. So this isn't a lie. This is my truth. And I don't like when Orthodox apologists come up and say, that's not Orthodoxy. You're right. It isn't. That was my Orthodoxy. That was the way I grew up. So I'm very clear that this is my specific story, my cousin, my community. This isn't you. You could have been raised way better than me. True. Granted. And, and then why are you knocking everyone? I'm not. I'm telling you this is how I was raised. Step one is raising awareness on how to do better. And luckily, we're around to see the better. So win-win. Well, no, win-lose because trauma. But, you know. Well, you're here to tell the tale. When you married your husband... You already knew that you had a same-sex attraction to women. So what was that like for you? Was that itself traumatic or did you repress it? I actually, I shared it with my husband because there were no secrets and he was a really good guy and we were best friends, you know? And even as the years went on and it was very clear that that was the identity that I, 
you know, geared towards, he would say he doesn't care. And the messed up part is I met someone in a class, in a Zumba class. Fair. Can you believe it? First it starts with Goyish music. Next thing you know, you're lesbian. And this girl came over to me and she started talking to me. Long story short, we had an emotional affair for many years. She went to my bungalow colony. For those of you that are listening and are like, what's a bungalow colony? It's basically a party for men. They send their women upstate for 10 weeks. By the way, it's a party for women too. Wink, wink. Um, and, you know, desperate women, lonely. Hello. So we had an affair, an emotional affair for five years. And also that made me extra disassociated because to me, it seemed so normal. She had kids and she, she was living this regular life in the community. And I was also, so we were like, oh, we have the quote unquote best of both worlds. We have each other. And then we also have all the benefits and the pros of the community, which let's be honest, if you are a member in this community, you are signed up for the benefits and the benefits include family, Hanukkah, Purim, Shabbosim, Chesed galore. I can go on and on, even financially. When you are a part of the community, you have much more financial opportunities as opposed to someone who graduates and has to send out 20 resumes. In our community, we have WhatsApp chats that post all the jobs. And this one knows that one. And, it's you know, there's so many pluses being a member of the community. So to give that up is torture. For me to, to know that once I was going to be exposed, my life as I knew it was going to disappear. I would no longer have my job. I would no longer be able to keep my child in the school they were in. I would no longer have the warmth and comfort of my family. And I would no longer have the warmth and comfort of some of my friends. And that's exactly what happened. It was loss after loss after loss. But ultimately, what I realized is that those who mind don't matter. And those who matter don't really mind. So it worked out okay. But in the community, there are other women out there like me. I went to a support group for many years. There are closeted women in the support group that have shaitals and children and communities and have made the decision to stay. One of someone I know really well has made a commitment to stay with her husband and be the best mother and best wife she can be and does not act on that part of her life. But it's painful and torture. See, for me, it was less painful because I didn't have so much at the end tying me to the community. My family was dysfunctional regardless of religion. Anyway, my husband and I didn't have a marriage anyway. My daughter didn't belong in the school she was in anyway. So for me to make those changes, I automatically became an, a more emotionally healthy person. But for a lot of people, it's not safe. They have everything in the community. They can't just walk away from that. Okay, Leah, we're almost out of time and I could keep going, but I actually have three questions I want to ask you. All right, so here's the first one. Today, Leah Forster, where do you find a sense of community? Great question. I think there are different parts that I take from different communities. Um, and it's actually a very rude awakening that I had, especially for someone like me who, let, who made changes. At first, I did what everyone else did and I went to another extreme and I connected with a bunch of people that also made changes. And what I realized was they're not community either because the minute your values don't align with them, whether it's politically or whether it's religiously or whatever it is, you're out too. 
I would make a bracha in front of my former friends and they would say, please don't make a bracha. It's very triggering. No, 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 no. I did not leave a fundamentalist community to join another fundamentalist community where you disinvite someone from your daughter's birthday party because that person voted differently than you. So my community comes from bits and pieces. And I don't delude myself into thinking that I'm part of any, totally part of any particular community. I am. I have communities. I have my queer community. I have my Jewish community. I have, you know, my work community, the comedy community. I have. But I'm also well aware that there's a limit. I am me. Okay. That's it. Here's my second question. You clearly are a person who has faith. So, Leo, what does God mean to you? What is your relationship with God like? I don't know if it's God per se. It's this world. It's this great big world. And of course, Hashem is included. Um, The way that I see it is that I'm one person. And I see it, especially when I'm in nature. I do a lot of meditative retreats, a lot of silent silent retreats. I like disconnect, Um, especially Shabbos. Like I was upstate and I was just like looking out at the water and the sun. And I was like, I see... I feel so loved. The Hashem I know adores me. He has given me such an abundance. I have such crazy talent and intelligence and looks. And I have my health. I'm so proud. Even when I go running or I work out, I'm like, look what he gave me. This incredible body. I can look what I'm capable of. So that's my God. That's my God. My God knows Leia went through a lot in her life. And I, you know, when I noticed it most, it was one pivotal week. It was the week that my mother died. And a few days after my mother died, I was driving home with my partner at the time. And she was having a panic attack on a bridge and opened the door and rolled herself onto the bridge in a panic. And this was, I was still in shock from my mother's death. And it was like that, plus not knowing what I'm going to find on the other end of the door. Because like her body just disappeared out of the car, literally. And I just... Whatever it was, extremely traumatic, obviously. So, yeah. Um, and then a few weeks later, my child went through a horrible, horrible battle, and I was in the hospital with them for days as well. I had experienced just loss, 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 shock in a matter of weeks, and that was a turning point for me. That was the point where I realized, like, I'm so much better than this. I'm so much bigger than this, and I really had to reevaluate my own relationship with myself and so if you ask me really where's god i would say he's like right here and i'm pointing to my heart that's what it means to me it's just um love a lot of love and a lot and a lot of self-love and when i am at my highest self um i feel i feel him very strong hugging me holding me i feel kisses from him all the time the fact that i was fired from my job and i got a home care job like a month later and now I run the whole company. That's God right there. Literally preparing the refuah before the makkah. So I'm ridiculously grateful. And I don't take it for granted. And when people say, oh, hashtag grateful, you know, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. If you see it, you'll find it, I think. Thank you for your honesty. And my, my last question, Leah, this podcast looks for solutions. We try to identify problems, but there's a goal. The goal is to make the Orthodox community as good as it can possibly be. So if you could now tell anyone listening in the Orthodox community, in your own experience, 
what sometimes goes wrong and what can it do better while remaining true to itself, to its Torah values, what would you say? Ooh, that's the loaded question, ain't it? It is indeed. Wow. What I would say, I really, it's going to sound so cheesy, but I would really say emotional health comes first. That needs to come first. It needs to come before Gemara. It needs to come before Torah. It needs to come before Shaduchim. It needs to come first. What does it mean, Derech Eretz Kadmala Torah? What does respect mean? Esteem. Love yourself. Respect yourself. Hold yourself in high regard. That's why whenever I lose my temper, I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That wasn't my highest self. That wasn't me. Whenever I'm angry, whenever I go into the woe is me, look what I went through in my life. I'm like, that's not my highest self. And my hope for the Orthodox community is keep doing what you're doing. Keep pushing mental health topics. Keep pushing the idea of self-love, of developing healthy relationships, setting good boundaries, not buying into the narrative of the narcissistic um, relationship that we have where we're the codependent. And God tells us that unless we keep A, B, and C, ooh, you're going to be punished and you're going to hell. No, no. Emotionally healthy is you are a person in this earth and you're here to do your best god loves you and after 120 you're going to stand in front of him and he's going to hug you and envelop you and there's going to be a place for you that's my world so i'm hoping that more people enter my world okay there's room for you all leah i have to tell you i expected this to be interesting i didn't realize it was going to be so moving so leah forster once again thank you really very much for joining me today on the podcast Guys, if you're listening, and I know you're probably going to listen because of me, because I'm going to tag this podcast and you're watching and you're listening to it. By the way, you're welcome for all these followers. But (laughs) if you're listening, follow this guy, because I'm telling you, I've done a lot of podcasts in in different areas. You ask the most intense questions and the most thought provoking questions. You are lit. I appreciate that, Leah. Thank you very much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. 
Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.